When you think of the word system, what first comes into mind? Well, common answers would be rules, regulations, protocols, organization, structure, anything that is built by an ecosystem of functional or moving parts that move and work together and enforce parameters is considered a system. Believe it or not, everything that makes up this world is a system, starting with ourselves. Our thoughts alone is a system. Our bones, internal organs, muscle groups, and reproductive organs are systems of their own. How about your daily routine? Let me guess, by the time you wake up, the first thing you do is check your phone with the hopes of finding a good morning message from a friend you are secretly in love with. I know that. <laughs> CK, interesting. How come you know that? Oh, stop it, Jonas. We've all been there. Alright, alright. But back to the topic. So you wake up excitedly to find that message like my buddy here just mentioned. Then go back to sleep again since you have set nine more alarms every two minutes to make sure that you really get up from bed. Next thing you'll do is prepare and eat your breakfast, take a bath, brush your teeth, dress up, and leave before 5.30 a.m. to beat the rush hour. What you have been doing just in the span of that one hour or less is considered a system you have built for yourself in preparing to go to work. Even as simple as how you prepare your meals every day or how you wear your socks and your shoes. I do it sock, shoe, sock, shoe, Jonas. How about you? Well, I do it sock, sock, shoe, shoe. I can't believe it. I also cannot believe how we have seemingly built a faulty global system that has been causing massive adverse effects, which have been aggravated by mass catastrophes, including this COVID-19 pandemic. Sounds about right. We have built an economic system that values financial capital and forgets the others. Living, cultural, experiential, intellectual, spiritual, social, and material capital. Comparing it all, it's one of seven. And it is an extremely one-sided affair. And that the system is what has, and always been since Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, introduced the notion of the international free market trade in the 1700s. This paved the way for nations to uphold monetary value and financial gains as indicators of a nation's economic growth. Back then, maybe this made sense to indicate an overall scientifically backed valuation of goods and services as they come. But how about now? It has just been the primary culprit of unsustainability, the root cause of all inequity, inequality, and exclusivity. Up until this point, I could not believe how an 18-carat gold paperclip by Tiffany & Company costs $1,500 and sell it because of quote-unquote branding, when in fact, its valuation could just be based on how useful it is like all other paperclips in the market, regardless of what they are made of. How do we reinvent our economy by seeing through the lens of the summary of all its parts? This is Sustain a Rumble, the podcast that explores critical issues on sustainable development. 
Here are your hosts, CK and Jonas. Through the centuries since we have first introduced and implemented a capitalist economy, we have placed official value on goods and services that are paid via banknotes or your bills. These pieces of paper and nickels in total indicate the total value of what you will buy. Before, we had the infamous barter trade where the merchant and the buyer bargain on the value of the goods to be bought in terms of what the buyer can trade them with. Say, 10 loaves of bread for, uh, for a plant pot. These banknotes, or cash as we call them, are in quantity that was pegged on the abundance of the gold reserves of a nation. So, basic economics goes like, you cannot simply overprint banknotes beyond the amount of the gold reserves available, else the value will be diluted. Look at how Zimbabwe overprinted banknotes and see what had happened to their economy. Hyperinflation drove the value of the currency down and therefore they printed a hundred trillion banknote for compensation. <laughs> oh my goodness, I want to get a hold of these bills so that I'll feel like a trillionaire for once and for all. Well, figuratively, hell yeah! You can imagine yourself bragging on Jeff Bezos' face as to who's the bigger trillionaire. Yeah, maybe, you know, in some imagination or what, some dream of mine or something. But, well, speaking of money, the global economy has been placed to measure the health of the financial market. Setting, setting aside the other valuable and immeasurable assets that each country, city, and local community possesses, and that the richness of these assets are continuously undervalued or even devalued, both when price tags are imposed or not imposed on them. Especially now that the monetary system is widely based on fiat, a valuation dictated by the government. With the current metrics, we cannot definitely place a quantifiable value on intellect, culture, quality of living, and others. And we have been so consumed with growth that we are slowly putting our future at risk. While we are creating an abundance of new resources in the market, we have been extracting raw resources at an unprecedented rate that is beyond maximum capacity, therefore leading to adverse effects such as climate change, environmental degradation, and excessive waste that could not be decomposed entirely. Add to it is the overall inequity and exclusivity that further drives the poor down. As industries have been laser-focused on extreme growth, only pegged on a single metric, it has put countless lives into danger. It has put people to create, you know, work crazy hours to achieve organizational goals for an increased profit margin. By the end of the quarter or even end of the year. People are viewed as commodity, one that can be easily replaced if non-top-shaped or deemed not useful for the task at hand. Other than that, growing traditional industries today that creates the products we love has been deteriorating the health of the public at an increasing rate. According to the World Health Organization, an estimate of 4.2 premature deaths worldwide are caused by air pollution, with diseases such as heart disease, lung cancer, acute lower respiratory infection, and more. 
We also have to count the millions of workplace disasters for, you know, dangerous jobs. Essentially, what we have been building with the resources that we over-extract and exploit from this planet are products that are not entirely man- or user-centric. It is like rubbing salt on an open wound. Couldn't have said that better, Jonas. In this day and age, value is more than just a number. Similar to the videos you see on Facebook showing how strong grandmas and grandpas still go on and crush the gym with their immense strength. And that these key resources that we also uphold and produce are not to be thrown away after serving their purpose. These are to be upcycled back to the chain of production or driven to their raw and pure form again. Then find ways to recreate and revalue them for something where their purpose could be maximized. It is called the regenerative or the circular economy. A regenerative economy nurtures healthy and resilient communities and regions, which each one uniquely informed by the essence of its individual history and place. It seeks to balance efficiency and resilience, collaboration and competition, diversity and coherence, and small and medium and large organizations and needs. You might know it better as the circular economy, but regenerative is just a more powerful word that goes beyond its plain definition in this kind of discussion. That's right, Jonas. It is about a much improved circulation of profit, not just with monetary but also on human, natural, social, intellectual, and cultural resources in such a way that all members of the society, from each individual member to the biggest enterprise and governments, are uplifted in the value chain. As a notion in the eight principles of a circular economy goes, True wealth is not merely money in the bank. It must be defined and managed in terms of the well-being of the whole, achieved through the harmonization of multiple kinds of wealth or capital, including social, cultural, living, and experiential. The circular economy is, in, some, in many ways, the response to some of the macro challenges that we kind of face today. That is Sebastian Egerton-Reed the learning program lead of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, a UK-based organization with the mission to accelerate the transition to a circular economy. Um, really, for 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, um, our economy has been working in a certain way. The Industrial Revolution was a time when our ability to make things more and more quickly, more and more cheaply, and just more and more things than ever before exploded. We worked out very different ways of uh, marketing those things so we could sell more and more things. And obviously that that became globalized so that um, that sat across the entire world at different chains. And sitting underneath all of that is a basic principle that we take things out of the ground, we make something out of them, and ultimately most of those things become waste after quite a short period of time. A very small amount um, is perhaps recycled. So a circular economy from the outset ends up to be aims to be regenerative by design design at it and it based on and you alluded to them genesis based kind of on three principles um design at waste and pollution so recognizing that waste and pollution are not accidents but actually the outcomes of decisions made in the design phase keep products and materials in use asking the question how do we keep the things that we make in their highest value use for as long as possible and design intentionally that way to begin with 
Um, so how do we have an economy that uses things rather than uses things up? And regenerate natural systems. This idea that we're not just aiming to mitigate negative impacts in the environment, we're not trying to do less bad things to our environment. How do we actively improve the environment? How do we build an economy and systems that are more inspired by the way nature works? In nature, there's no such thing as waste. In nature, uh, a leaf falls from the tree and it feeds the forest. Um, so it's about how do we design things very differently from the outset. How different is a circular economy from the current economic model if we define growth and value? The first thing is the circular economy is a call to reinvent and re redesign everything. So it's different in almost every single way. You think about the take-make-waste system, it's really about taking that take-make-waste and turning it back around. Um, how do we keep things in use? How do we design that waste and pollution? How do we regenerate natural systems? Right now we're degrading our natural systems. We have a very wasteful economy um, and a lot of our valuable assets are, are, are wildly underutilized, underused. So it's a completely different economy. Um, in terms of the question about kind of growth and value, um, it's, the circle economy is about recognizing, a few, there's, a few, there's a few things we can unpack in that question. The circle economy is about recognizing a kind of different kind of growth. Um, and actually there are a number of reports, including produced by the foundation, but also by a number of other big consultancies, Accenture and Deloitte, and who have shown like, a significant economic benefit um, to transition to a circle economy by designing out waste, keeping the products and materials in use by applying the principles I've mentioned. So significant business case for a circular economy, maybe a different kind of growth because a linear economy actually relies really on a throughput model. How do you push more and more through and therefore it becomes really about efficiencies of scale. How do we reduce costs as much as possible on the way? Or how do we just do more stuff? Those are really the only two ways to grow in a linear economy. Um, well, a circular economy looks at um, maybe a more complete view of growth? How do we circulate things more readily? How do we create a different kind of value from the things that we make? Speaking about the transition from a linear economy, what do you think are the key principles and areas that we need to drastically change to make this transition? I guess it's worth reflecting that the linear economy has kind of had 200 years of optimization. We've been optimizing for this throughput model. And the linear economy optimizes on each end of the chain, so from take to make to waste. Um, there's a lot of what we call vertical innovation. So in individual parts of the value chain, there's an incredible amount of innovation um, because it's really about how do we make it as efficient as possible. Um, but there's not a lot of system innovation. So for example, in the world of plastic packaging, there's been a lot of innovation in terms of the material choices, even the design of the packaging, the limiting of the material in the packaging. But there's not been a lot of innovation in terms of well, how does that actually sit and how does that actually fit into the system when it's actually used by people or if it needs to be at some point collected and or repurposed. Businesses are responsible in redesigning how they produce goods. Do you believe that the private organizations have to invest in order to make that transition or should the governments help subsidize that move? When you say produce responsibility, I would actually switch that around to say produce opportunity. The circular economy is an opportunity to get your your things back and to actually have value at a lower cost. So um, we talk about things like remanufacturing, reuse. Many of these things actually are economically viable today, at least for specific products, and um, are, are less costly. In the case of, for example, Renault has a its remanufacturing operations are 
the most profitable in their organization. Um, they save 80% of energy, 70% of water. So it's producer opportunity to get your stuff back and to do stuff to, to continue to valorize it, keep those products and materials in use. And rather thinking about it as um, like, how do we upcycle our trash? I think about it and I think the opportunity comes when we think about how do we design things in the first place they never become trash. But if you ask me, it's a very promising concept. In a, regener a regenerative society, nothing can ever be put to waste. What we create, we convert, repair, add parts, or tear it apart and repurpose. Those that are to be decomposed go back to nature and enrich our lands in the forms of fuel, fertilizers, or energy conversion to power our homes, including the far-flung communities. Those are for the tangible items that we produce. How about the intangibles, you might ask? Well, for one, our cultures are meant to be sustained. We must be able to create an environment where culture is not valued simply with performing art shows or exhibits that cost something for entry. It is more about understanding the history and identity of each locality and its members. It is about championing their beliefs in building a sound community that understands how it can create value in the ways it knows how, while putting the people and its identity at the forefront of its governance and business. And it is understanding the moral compass of its members, especially in cases that would involve their participation. Then, we build around that to realize long-term growth. Moving forward, Achieving an economy and governance that is innately regenerative by principle requires the participation and involvement of the collective. They are like the government, uh, small to big enterprises, nonprofits, educational and professional organizations, learning institutions, uh, community groups, action forces, respondents, thinkers, advocates, and households. It is about Involving everyone in the system to act as agents and empowering them with distinct roles to see and think, not only from the top to bottom, but from the bottom up, with regards to protocols, practices, regulations, strategies, and action plans on every sector of the community. This is what we call systems thinking. I, mean, I think more about the regulations or the opportunities to for policymakers to actually shift um, positively the transition to a circular economy versus what's in place that um, that maybe prohibits that Seb again. So, and actually, you know, talking about redesigning, reinventing everything, um, it does mean a transition of the regulatory frameworks. The other thing I'd say about that is, um, in terms of what policies are going to work um, to enable transition to circular, they're extremely context specific. Um, and indeed, this, you know, the circular economy is significantly more context specific, perhaps, than the model it's replacing. Um, it's very much it, it's a it's deliberately a, a a more balanced, localized, globalized picture. It's deliberately a picture that involves different scales. Um, so, so in terms of like what policies are barriers, it's going to depend very much on your existing regulatory framework. But actually, it's better in some ways to think about what policies can enable this transitional or um, enable the kinds of innovation that we'd like to see. How would the people, businesses, and organizations begin to understand what the circular economy upholds, which should encourage them to participate in the shift? 
I still think there are some fundamental there are some fundamental principles in terms of making the case for businesses to transform. I think the first thing is how do we how do you frame it as an opportunity? It has, it has to be framed as an opportunity. Um, it may not be an opportunity to increase exactly what they're doing right now, but actually businesses understand how the world is changing. Um, so I think that framing it as opportunity is really important in terms of engaging with your customers, in terms of um, sort of jumping ahead of regulations, in terms of um, continuing to produce value. Um, the second thing I think is um, is examples. Um, the increasing the, the more innovation examples, the more inspiration there is from other places in the world. The you know the examples really convince people. I think in terms of um, in terms of yeah, like showing people that's happening now, showing people that it's possible, um, even if it's not happening at scale in the the sector or the country or the wherever it is uh, the context you're trying to make the case in. Um, and I think the third, the third way of the third sort of conviction point we find with businesses is very often that the businesses in particular may not be willing to take the jump in terms of changing their entire business tomorrow um, from linear to circular. There's very often opportunities to kind of look at a pilot, to look at a kind of a particular place where they can kind of innovate and play with it and and uh, and demonstrate some of and begin to themselves to create those stories or that demonstration that. Um, it can work for them. Um, none of this is to underestimate the kind of challenge that it, that takes place with your whatever stakeholder you're trying to convince um, initially. But um, but those are some of the some of the principal frameworks I think. What would be the biggest reasons why we should shift, and how best to educate and communicate circular economy in general? One of the things that's quite interesting from um, the kind of the, the example of the pandemic, I guess, is it shows you just how radically and quickly things can change when you're faced with a crisis. However, we reflect back on on these very strange few months, um, or possibly longer, um, it it certainly shows an example how the world can just completely transform, or whole countries can completely transform the way their citizens are living their lives in a mo at a moment's notice in in response to uh, a threat or at least a perceived threat in crisis. Um, and and obviously, you know, climate change in many ways is a threat that is even more significant than that in terms of the the radical changes and damage it can do to our way of our ways of life if if the projections are right. So I think the most obvious answer in terms of why I think the transition will happen is because I think we have to. Um, I think one of the things we want to start talking about more and increasingly what I think is interesting to talk about is how do we ensure that the transition is kind of equitable and just and fair um, and, and managed in some way um, versus, you know, and in the case of the pandemic, everyone has to just stay at home for a while. It, it won't happen like that. Um, so I think that I think that it will happen because it has to. Um, I think it will happen because it will increasingly be an opportunity for all stakeholders involved. And as we increase our understanding and as it's demonstrated more to work, I think that will accelerate. Um, and I think the best way to explain it is still actually for me, um, and I'm not sure people love it when I give this answer, but for me it's the, the power of ideas. Um, the, the, what I think is very powerful about the circle is it's an idea that's exciting. That um, that makes you think of solutions and opportunities. We want we did we've done quite a lot of work in our time in schools, and um, we we like to tell this anecdote where um, we, there was this quite early on in our schools work, um, we um, our team had delivered a 
kind of talk to um, or like a, a session that involves um, the students doing some stuff. And one of the students said to uh, to a member of our team, um, uh, I used to not really know what I was going to do, but now I can see how I could redesign everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and, you know it's that kind of empowering moment um, and opportunity that is exciting about the surf economy, in my opinion. Great, great. We don't have all of the answers, but it allows us to ask some of the right questions. A good metric we can also consider is that today, 70% of global compact companies are advancing broad UN goals and issues. By aligning their core business strategy, tying social investment to core competencies, advocating the need for action, and implementing partnership projects. This is further enforced through ISO 26000, which is intended to assist organizations in contributing to sustainable development. It is the beginning of what could be a total shift in the way we do business, which is good for the people, the planet, and profit. In the end, the path to a regenerative economy boils down once again to two things, systems thinking and collaboration. All the actors in the community must begin rethinking their standard processes to see what they tweak, what to improve, and what to keep. A total shift in the economic system does not seem like a logical idea at this moment, because any economic model has its own problems. Several advocates from across the world push what we remodel into a socialist system, but that could spell more trouble than benefit. Instead, a model we can consider keeping is the capitalist model and uphold its strengths while balancing it out with socialist principles to realize the utmost benefits for all the members in the community. And it could potentially be hard to effectively implement a global standard to all hyper-local communities. While it provides guidelines, one effective and easier way to uncover more results is working around the local contexts of individual communities and measuring how its local members can work together to achieve their overall goals. The tendency for regenerative development projects to provide benefits in all four capital systems is much more compelling than the incentive to incorporate a global, general set of values into each organization. As we usher in a more informed world, all we hope is that every member of the community will be informed and empowered of newer and more sustainable practices. That begins from the government and certifying parties that will enforce regulations. Incentivizing those that will comply and take concrete steps in achieving these grand goals is a great idea as well. We must always put human and moral concerns first in strategic discussions and programs on all sectors, big and small. Let's focus on building a healthier ecosystem that aims to focus for the quality of all. Let us also explore our creative and entrepreneurial abilities to innovate in such a way that we reinvent and redesign the machine we've lived with for hundreds of years for the betterment of everyone. And let's foster a culture that sparks anything valuable that sleeps for an equitable future for all. On the next episode of Sustain a Rumble, 
the country's most vulnerable and at high-risk communities' reliance on the sachet economy, at the expense of our lands and waters, have been very costly on our environment. And in turn, being able to save money for now puts everyone's lives at risk from destructive natural disasters as the result of the environment's turndown. It is relatively easy to point fingers to the huge chunk of the community that patronizes this buying behavior. But considering the fact that it has been more of a systemic problem should allow us to see that it is an issue that has to be addressed from the top down to the grassroots. Turn in to sustain a rumble as we tackle finding the balance between environmental preservation and social growth that sees the prosperity of all people while avoiding putting the environment to the brink of destruction. Don't forget to also like us on Facebook and join our community group there called Sustainer Rumble Community where you can get in touch with us and also connect with our growing Sustainer Army. Also, follow us on Instagram at Sustainer Rumble and follow us here wherever you are listening to this right now. See ya!